Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Every so often, a chance meeting ignites a spark that becomes a great burning flame. And when four young teenagers from Liverpool met and formed a band, yes, let's just ignore the Pete Best Ringo Starr thing for the sake of this introduction, okay? They would end up taking over the world, at least musically. Meanwhile, on the other side of the River Mersey, teenager Jennifer McGovern was fixing up her beehive and putting on her best home-sewn dress to begin her job processing claims in the legal department of the Blue Funnel shipping line based just behind the iconic Liver buildings in the Liverpool docks, a journey that would mean getting the ferry across the Mersey every morning, a job that would see her at lunchtimes popping down to a nearby music venue called The Cavern. Hello and welcome to The Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand and for today's episode I am in Liverpool with my mum and my children, Tracing the early days of the Beatles, catching the ferry and hearing all about the excitement of the era and the trials and tribulations of following the Beatles around, being their friend and also of being a mixed race couple in the early 60s. This is from my lovely mum who was there and this is her story. Jennifer Nand was just a young teen when the Beatles were at the start of their meteoric rise, piling into her friend Jenny's hearse to go watch the bands, hitching lifts home through the Mersey Tunnel, being accidentally spat on the nose by none other than John Lennon, watching the debut performances of some of the UK's and indeed the world's most brilliant acts, rebelling on the Mersey Ferry, controversially dating and then marrying my Indian Fijian dad, and much, much more. Jennifer Nand is on the Big Travel Podcast. So, we're standing outside the cavern, although this isn't the original spot of the cavern, isn't it? I think it's just over the road. Yeah. Well, it's the same street down here. Take this down because it's rattling and we get Oh. I think that possibly is it, I'm not sure. What was this like in the 60s? Oh, it was amazing. The atmosphere was tremendous. We worked just around the corner and myself and my friends used to come here when the Beatles were playing but we came when Jerry and the Pacemakers were playing and Dion and the Belmonts and the Swinging Blue Jeans they all played here it was amazing no alcohol served and the place was full of smoke but it was, and we used to go back to the office stinking of smoke but it was fun we had a great time and if we came at night we were able to um, stand outside the Mersey Tunnel and thumb a lift home and whoever we got in the first car that stopped for us, no trouble at all. 
and I drop Hazel off at Bebbington, me at, at Bromborough and another friend, Carol, at Eastham. So it was it was fantastic time to be alive and enjoy yourself, freedom. It was it was great. So what was the idea behind lunchtime gigs and concerts? Because you don't really get a lot of that these days. Was no, it quite common? It was common then in, in some of the clubs. It was common and, and it brought in money. You had to pay, so the, it brought in money to the clubs and that was good. Epstein was often down there. Um, Scylla, so that's where we first saw Scylla. I didn't hear her sing until she came to Birkenhead at the Majestic and uh, they introduced her because of course she was very friendly with them they introduced her as she was, then she was Pris- no she was Priscilla White no I think she changed then to Scylla Black um, but she was originally and she belted out summertime and the, oh, it was amazing everybody stood still to listen to her voice she was it was it was a good time to be 18 did you have any direct interaction with the Beatles? Yes, you could talk to them. They'd come off stage. And then my friend Jenny, she had a, a group called Jenny and the Tall Boys. And they, the touring car was a, a hearse. So we used to go around in the hearse, which drew, drew everybody's attention at the club door. Then um, we followed them. Oh, yeah. We followed them to Helsby Hills. We used to go around wherever they went, if it was if it was local and if somebody had a car, because don't forget, very few people had cars in those days. And um, at, at Helsby Hills, where they sang, I remember, I can't remember what song it was, um, but a little blob of spit came on my nose from John. Very few people up there. It was stuck at the top of the hill in Cheshire. But... Uh, Good days. John Lennon spat on your nose. Yeah, John Lennon spat on my nose. Did he That's notice? Like, no, he didn't notice. John didn't notice anything <laughs> in his own little world. But it, it was great. Really enjoyed it. And your friends were friends with them. You were all friends with them. Yes, yeah. My, my work colleague, Linda, she lived in the same street as, as Paul. And uh, Jenny from Jenny and the Tall Boys, because they used to... Uh, come on before the Beatles came on so they were all backstage I can't say in dressing rooms because it was just a little place there was no dressing rooms at that time. describe the atmosphere out front in the cavern oh it was crazy everyone jumping up and down um, smoked filled room it was it was wonderful and we at that time we didn't really think no, well, we didn't know at all that they were going to be famous. So I remember the first time they played their first uh, record. I was in the bath, and my mum shouted, she said, listen, listen, they're on the radio. And we switched it up loudly. And to us, it was just, you know, just our friends playing music on the radio. But then it really took off when they did the, the rooftop in London and everything. It was good. So it must have been incredible watching their meteoric rise after they left here. Was oh, that yeah. when you were watching them in the camp in the cavern? I can't remember. Was that before or after the Hamburg days? That was uh, mostly after I saw them after the Ham- Hamburg days. And Pete Best was drumming first of all there, and then I'm not sure if it was the first time Ringo played, but 
it was at the Iron Door Club that we, all my friends, we were all there. And Ringo was, if it wasn't the first time he played, he was fairly new. And they kept on saying, do you know this one, Ringo? This is a good one, Ringo. Do you know this one? <laughs> Which was a bit unfair. But did he? He, see, he seemed yeah. to know them. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> he knew it. They were just joking. That was when the twist was around Chubby Checker, and the twist had just so we're all twisting the night away. It was good. And then I remember that night specifically, we uh, walked to the Mersey Tunnel and got a lift through the tunnel from some random stranger. Yeah, from any, any first person that stopped there. Anybody stopped and had a chat with them, and, and it was good. What would you be wearing at that time? Oh, a mini skirt. I'd be in a quite a short mini skirt, maybe knee-length boots. But uh, we had some great outfits. I know we, the, the girls these days think they did, but we had some great. And I used to make my own clothes then, so I wish I'd have kept them or at least taken a photograph. But nobody had a camera. I remember one specific time I'd been to the cavern, and I had a beehive hairstyle. And the, I suppose she was a human resources lady. And she called me into the office. And I'd just come back from a holiday in Mallorca. So I was very, very brown. And the wind had blown my beehive. So it was about 12 inches tall on my head. And she said, Jennifer, do try to be a little exotic, little less exotic. <laughs> And I said yes. And then she said, could I not tie my hair back and have a bun at the nape of my neck? I always wish that in some of the old footage of the cavern, because there is old footage that, you know, you'd been there. I'm guessing that you never remember the uh, no. a, a camera being there. No, I ne- never remember any cameras or any publicity or anything like that. So it wasn't just the Beatles, was it? It was no. You saw just an amazing array of fans. Exactly. Some of them became famous others faded away um no it was it was good so you would at the time your life you were getting because you weren't living in liverpool you were getting no, no, the I was living in bromborough bromborough on the wirral on the other mm. side so you'd be getting the ferry across the mersey famously yes in the morning yes we used to get the ferry uh, get the bus from bromborough to woodside ferry run down we were always late run down depending on the tide if the uh, what do you call it the way Cause, down. causeway no <laughs> the ramp that goes to the goes to the boat it was if the tide was low it was very steep to run down if it was tide was high it was an uh, upward run and we it was like four old pence to go on the boat and round the top deck, the businessmen, then they all had umbrellas and bowler hats. Some had bow ties. And they used to walk around reading the Times or the newspapers, all walk around in the one direction. But myself and my friends would be very annoying and very childish, probably, and walk around in the opposite direction and interrupt their their morning walk around the top deck well we're going to go to the Beatles museum apparently there is one we're standing outside one right here next to the cavern on Matthew Street and but we're going to go to a bigger and better one apparently down on the and the Albert Dock yes yeah let's do that now let's go bye 
We just saw the Beatles Story Museum and it's wonderful, really good. Takes you through the whole experience from the very early days to what they did next. And boys, what did you think of the Beatles Story? It was good. Yeah, it was good. So we, we saw like John Lennon, we saw Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, like quite a lot. What, and what was your favourite part of it? I think it was about the wars, like the like the World War Two and like other stuff like that. Sebi, what was your favourite part of the Beatles story? Um, I'm not sure. Can you invent something? Uh, no. <laughs> and we're now we're now in the queue to get the ferry across the Mersey. Officially across the Mersey. To see our great granny dying because she was 99. <laughs> we're going to mine and my mum's hometown of Brumborough on the Wirral. She was 99. She did. My lovely nan died when she was 99. But this is the ferry that my mum used to get to and from work every day over to the... from the Wirral to Liverpool, from Birkenhead to Liverpool and back again. What was it like back then, Mum? Oh, it was um, cold. <laughs> but it was enjoyable. It was better than being on the train. And it was much cheaper. And our building, India Buildings, was just three minutes' walk away across the road. And it was cold, cold now. <laughs> cold now. So cold and now. also, um, our granny is a big story. She, she was in the World War Two in our house. <laughs> We're going to go see the house where my mum was born, actually, in the house. And I think what Elliot wanted to say there was my mum was born in the middle of an air raid. And Uncle Neil was born in an air raid in 1942, and you were born in 1943. In the house there, in the middle of the war. 14. There was a war when I was born. Probably was somewhere in the world in 2012 and 2014. I'm not. I don't have a voice changer. It's busy, actually, because it's half-term at the moment. So as a travel journalist, I've been on four or five different radio stations already, including the Jeremy Vine show on BBC Radio 2. I'm scheduled to go on ITV News. Um, You've just been in one. I've just been on one. And also I'm doing the round of the local BBC radio stations, so probably about ten BBC radio stations. This is all while sightseeing, going around the museums, getting the ferry across, seeing old friends and family, looking after two children and my mother. You're not looking after me. I'm not looking after her. And recording this episode. Childcare is stressful. Childcare is stressful, you're right. <laughs> Sitting here on the top deck in the sunshine now, I mean it's still a bit chilly, but this is the deck you used to walk around. Oh, was me. it? Yes, you. Yes, yes, um, but the seats weren't here, obviously, so they just used to walk around the perimeter and we used to annoy them. I can't believe that people were still in bowler hats when you were working. Yes, 60s, yeah, mostly the the executives and their rolled umbrellas. They used to march like that with them, flicking them up. 
and the newspapers. It was had a newspaper under one arm, spin striped suit. So don't forget, there were a lot of lawyers around then and solicitors in in the city. That's the clock on the Liver building, striking one o'clock. And that is the time that our ferry leaves, so hopefully we'll be heading out soon. I'm wondering if they're going to toot the horn. What's the horn called on a boat? Um, I don't know. The uh, funnel, whatever it is. I actually remember being in my nan's house in Bromborough, which is a, uh, a few miles from here. And we were just about to go to bed. Uh, I used to go and stay with her really often. I was really lucky. And uh, we spent a lot of time together. And um, she said to me, she said, oh, did you hear that? That means there's a big boat, or a ship rather, on the Mersey. And I heard nothing. She had better hearing than I did, <laughs> even until she was 99. Come on, take the horn. Welcome aboard one of the most famous ferries in the world. Please pay attention to the emergency procedure notices displayed around the vessel. In the unlikely event of an emergency, you will hear seven short blasts followed by one prolonged blast on the whistle. If you hear this signal, please make your way to the life jacket assembly points following the assembly station direction signs displayed. Good morning. I know you've all been welcomed aboard once, but I'd like to welcome you aboard again. My name is Jean, and I'm just going to be telling you a few things about what you're going to see as we are on our way. Now, did you know that there's been a ferry across the Mersey for more than 800 years? And it's provided a link between this side and that side, between Liverpool and Wirral. We're, on, we're just leaving Pier Head. And this takes its name from the long stone pier which once jutted out into the river from the shore next to the Sailor's Church. Now the Sailor's Church, if you glance to the right... Back end, plus the tide pushes the boat in, you see it's safer. And plus it's the biggest area. We're getting off. Thank you. See you now. Thank you. And we're on the Wirral. Over here on the Wirral, it's a much different atmosphere to Liverpool. That's always been a very busy and bustling port. And what was it like growing up on the Wirral? in the 50s and 60s? 
Yes, it was. It was well, where we lived. It was a quiet area. Um, nothing much happened. There were a few coffee bars. As there were, in fact, there was one coffee bar in Bromber Village. Um, it was built on an old pub. They knocked the pub down and built a coffee bar. And we used to go and hang around there. And very few of us had enough money for two coffees. But we'd have a coffee and just sit around there till it was time till we all had to be in, usually at half past nine. My next-door neighbour, he was a little bit older than me, and he had a friend that had a motorbike. So then the motorbike came, but that was probably when I was 15, 16. There were a lot of motorbikes, and they were they were good guys. They had jobs, but because... They had mot- motorbikes and leather jackets. They were frowned upon, which was ridiculous. But uh, I wasn't allowed to go on the back of anybody's motorbike, but I did. And uh, my one of my closest friends, probably you'd call him a boyfriend, I don't know, um, he had a nice Triumph 650, so... We used to go on that often. And then some days, particularly on Sundays and Saturdays, we would walk down to a place called Raby Mere, beautiful lake with with boats on it. And we'd all congregate there, much to the well, probably annoyance because the motorbikes would come down. But we'd just park there and talk, nothing wrong with that. But it, it was frowned upon. The re the going on the motorbikes when you weren't allowed the walking around the opposite way of the men on the ferry was not the only rebelling you did. Probably the biggest rebelling or the the most controversial thing you did was meet my dad. Oh yes, your dad. Mm. I don't I don't see it as rebelling. I just fell in love with with him. I don't see it as rebelling. I, I should point out here that he he's of Indian extract, um, born in Fiji, brought up in Fiji. But the British took the Indians, um, well, they told them they'll go around the corner to from Calcutta to some other place to work. And they ended up miles, thousands of miles away in Fiji, where they became indentured labour and um, slaves, basically. They were treated very, very badly. A lot of them died on the way there because of uh, not measles. It was just coughs and colds that they weren't used to. And one boat in particular capsized. A lot of them were lost. Uh, but that's how the the Indians arrived in Fiji and have been there ever since. There's an awful lot of history attached to that. So Dad in, was it 1959 or 1960? 60. 1960, Dad found his way from New Zealand and via the States to Southampton. If you haven't listened to the episode with my dad, Chris Nand, do have a listen because it's quite something the way he, a little boy from Fiji, an Indian Fijian boy, um, wound up on the south coast of the UK, found his way up north because he'd met, when he was in in Fiji, he'd met a a kind man who was his boss, I Mm, do believe, in the factory there who said, if you ever want to come to England, here is my parents' address in the Wirral. And um, and he, my dad wrote and wrote to them and was taken in by them and found his way here. Mm. And what, what was your first encounter with him? Uh, we were both very keen um, gym people and he went to a gym in Wallasey and I 
went to the ladies' part and saw him there and we said hello, but his English wasn't... He won't like this. <laughs> it was a bit poor. Um, and then we had a date and, and that was it. So, well, it, I mean, it wasn't that easy. My father threatened to cut me off of all inheritance and all that nonsense. That sounds like you come from like a family with inheritance. There was no inheritance at that point. No, at that point there was nothing. Well, there wasn't any. It wasn't any. Um, We were working class. I'd say you were the the only girl in school that wasn't at the council estate, weren't you? There were were not many on... on, on, Most of them were on the council estate in the junior school, in the senior school. That was a different kettle of fish. It was in Bebbington. Yeah, of course, at Wirral Grammar... It was all much more respect. I wasn't saying your early schooling wasn't respectable. Oh. But what I was saying was there, there was no inheritance. Your dad was a manager no. in a factory. Yeah. and Stork. Stork factory. And they were working class made good, weren't they? Yes, still very, yes, he worked hard. Very lower middle class. Mm. And, mm. and your mum, my lovely nan, was uh, brought up with her sister and their mum, who was a single mum taking in washing because she was a widow because her husband Nan's dad had been killed mm. in in the mm. in the first world war mm. in 1917 and you have to remember at that time i mean we we it was my father's opinion and, and and chris appreciated that and would never go against it but there was still apartheid well in south africa but in america it there was still total segregation in the 60s total I mean, they couldn't... Well, Rosa Parks, everybody knows that story about on the bus. But um, yeah, there was total segregation. So I suppose he had a right to worry about me. But but I wasn't particularly worried. And we were together for about... We could never live together. I wouldn't have done that then. Um, never on holiday together. We were never allowed to be together. And my father would stand on the doorstep at 11 o'clock on the dot, waiting for me to get off the last bus. Chris saw me to the door, but he would never acknowledge him. Um, but that, that's how it was. So that was my, my father probably had a, not a right, but he had cause to worry that I wouldn't, that would end up, I don't know, in some ghetto, I don't know. He never discussed his, his feelings with me. Strangely enough, his, his mother, who was alive, encouraged me. <laughs> she was a bit of a rebel. She was definitely a bit of a rebel. Very, I would say she was very left-wing. Um, but like it. Like it. <laughs> I always remember her saying um, that one day, and this is in the late 50s, one day we won't have corner shops. We'll have... Um, big places in the country and everyone will have a car and go and do their shopping. Mm. Uh, big markets, or they, they weren't called supermarkets, they didn't exist. Big places in the country where you'd go and shop for a week. Um, so she was... If she, if she, she was clever. If she'd have been educated, um, she would have been very clever. So she approved of your marriage to Dad, yeah. but your own father didn't go to the wedding. No. And your mother... My nan was only really had to sneak out there under pain of being excommunicated herself. Yes, yes. He said if she goes to the wedding, he would never allow her in the house again. I'm talking about the wedding, the the honeymoon as such. (laughs) You could call it a honeymoon. 
we went to St. Asaph in Wales, a place that, that, that I love. It's a nice little place. But nobody would let us in. <laughs> we were not, and it was freezing cold. It was January. And we knocked on several uh, bed and breakfast, I suppose. And they said, no, no, we're full up. And then the last one, we tried three or four. And the last one we went to, the lady said, oh, yes, come in. And uh, then she told us where to go for a meal. And, but I was worried because I thought my mother wouldn't be allowed back in the house. But she was. He needed someone to cook his dinner. <laughs> yeah, make his sandwiches. She was allowed back in the house. and uh, But he didn't talk to us for about 10 years. And initially she wasn't allowed to talk to us. So any telephone conversation, by that time we'd had a phone installed in the house... <laughs> Any telephone conversation was like secret code. I'd say, hello, and she would answer, oh, it's a lovely day, isn't it? It was very, very difficult. And then for the first five years, we didn't have children. And then uh, Lisa and Marcus came along, and he didn't thaw. He didn't, he treated them. Well, he didn't see them. But um, That's me, by the way. Oh, that's that's the the interviewer. but he didn't, it, it later difficult. on he thawed with us, didn't he? Yes, but when I, he was older. When and he, he was older. He was getting, well, I won't say senile, but he just became more tolerant. And I'd see him be so, so kind when he came to visit us in Spain. He'd be so kind and his face would light up when he spoke to little children. Mm. And I, I just never, ever saw him look at us no, that way. And no. it, was, it was interesting for me. I was only mm. young at the time, but I'd noticed the way he mm. treated other children, you know, oh, white yes, children, differently. Yes, yeah. Very mm. differently. Definitely. And then, then, of course, we had the problem of finding somewhere to live. That was very difficult. Um, we would phone, we'd see an ad in the newspaper and we'd phone up and they'd say, oh, yes, come along. And we'd be standing in a phone booth because we didn't have mobile phones, of course. We'd be standing in a phone booth watching the house and the person would say, yes, come along, come along. Um, and we'd go and knock at the door and they say, oh, sorry, it's just been let. We've just let it. Sorry, we don't have any more. So it was very difficult to find somewhere to live. Eventually, we knocked at the door again. It was a lovely Catholic lady, which had happened, as if you read, if you see Lisa's uh, podcast when her father was doing it. A nice Catholic lady let us in the house and... and we lived in a room, it was a nice room, but it was so cold. And we had an electricity meter that took about two old shillings to, to even cook a meal. It was, it was cold. And we just saved and saved and saved and saved and uh, eventually got our own house. A very you know. big, nice house, by all accounts. I remember, um, mm. what was that encounter with Grandad? when he came round to fix something, when you were just getting back in touch with him? Oh, yes, there was a leak somewhere. We had no idea how to fix it. We'd not long move in. And uh, nobody could come and neighbours couldn't help. So I had to ask him. And his face, when we saw where, where we were living, it was, it was a picture. He, was a st- he didn't say anything. He wouldn't say anything. He just fixed the leak and uh, off he went. But he was very surprised to see where we live. It wasn't a mansion, but it was a very nice house. What, going back to how we started this um, 
this particular episode. We were partying in Liverpool, in Matthew Street, in the cavern in the 60s. So you took Dad to all those places, didn't you? You went to those yes. places together. Yes. And how was he received by the young people? Oh, very well. He was, he was adored. I mean, he always has been. Well, he's polite. He was very, very handsome. He was stunning, wasn't he? You don't remember. I've when seen he pictures, was, though. He's yeah. very handsome. And also with and, you, you're a very good-looking couple. Oh, thank you, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you were. You were a very striking couple. Seeing your wedding uh, photos, you getting married in your white leather coat and him with his lovely suit. You designed yourself. Yes. Um, no, we went to the Beachcomber was one place in particular. All the Everton footballers were there because he's an Everton supporter. So he was just chatting to them and we were dancing. And then it was, yeah, we went to these clubs. I, I did go a lot with my girlfriends because he's not the world's best dancer. <laughs> Can you edit that? <laughs> That's a bit I mean. I get my dancing scores from you. But I love to dance and I, I do dance a lot, given the opportunity. But... Um, yeah, I've been married now 55 years, coming up 56 years. So life, married life is not easy sometimes. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but we've, we've survived. And I have to say, moving to Spain, that we don't encounter any prejudice there, um, whether there is any underlying prejudice, but people just accept you for who you are, what you've got, if you're a good person and... And that's it, it has been. I'm sure underneath there might be some prejudice, but it's not obvious, it's definitely... Whereas in England, there was a lot of, uh, in the 60s, a lot of prejudice, uh, particularly with, with our eldest, well, our son, Marcus. Um, at school, he was being picked on. There was himself and another boy that was mixed race. So before Lisa started school, they were being picked on and... and Haunted because of their colour and their very nice brown colour. And um, it was then that Chris decided that we were going somewhere. We'd been doing a little bit of buying and selling property in in Spain and uh, he'd been over to Fuenquirola and he said, it's a great place. He said, nobody cares who you are, what you've got. And he said, for the first time in many, and I remember this, many, many years, he said, I can walk down the street with my head in the air. Nobody even looks at me or talks or anything, you know, whispers behind his back. So we, we packed up and went. We had five suitcases and we went, couldn't afford the flight. So we went on, uh, on the bus, three days on the bus. I remember it well. I was seven years old and I travelled with my rag doll on my knee all the way. And Marcus was nine years old and he had a guitar mm. that he picked up along the way and the rest is history. And if you want to listen to what happened next for my mum and dad, they had an amazing... Well, we, we continue to have an amazing life and connection in Spain and have travelled quite extensively. I do listen to my dad's episode um, of, of the, uh, the podcast. I did a Father's Day special a couple of years ago and interviewed dad about all his travels and how he felt coming from Fiji to the north of England and then everything he's done since. You've been to so many countries, um, Cuba, you love going to India, you love travelling around the States, going back mm. to Fiji, Australia, New Zealand... Mm. But actually, probably more, most magical in my memories of travel with you was our 
our travels around the south of France yes. and Europe in a camper van mm. when I was younger because um, my dad worked in Vauxhalls and he had some car knowledge and skills, but you used to buy camper vans and, and have them kitted out and made yeah. into... Empty vans. Empty vans and made from auction and made into a, a camper van. And that was really... Those days were really magical. But And then, of course, through your, through your work, you've travelled extensively. Mm, I've been... Well, we lived in Turkey. We lived in Mallorca. Um, and then we've travelled to Montenegro, Moscow, Ekaterinburg in, in Russia. Israel. Israel, Egypt. Egypt. So many lovely places. Peru, Cuba. So many places. I can't recall them all. In fact, I, I get I must get my travel bug from you and Dad because my first ever holiday I was six weeks old. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and we went to North Wales. Yeah, and it rained all the time we were there, yeah. and I cried the whole time as well. Mm. Yeah, my travels have got better since. But anyway, so if you want the full story about Mum, Dad, and the travels, do listen to Dad's episode, Chris and um, I forget what number it is, but it's there somewhere. But to finish this episode, I always ask people about a music question and I'm assuming you know because you do listen to my podcast I do listen to your podcast yes not, uh, not even under duress no um and I'm going to ask you uh, to pick a song and I'd actually I'd like you to take you back to Liverpool and that time uh of the 60s because that's why we're here on this little nostalgia tour if you had to pick a memory one song that particularly takes you back to that time. What is that song and what is the memory? Well, thinking of it now, it is the Hollies that played many times at the Cavern, the air that I breathe. That's, that's, and strangely enough, Lisa and I went to see them last Saturday night in Brighton Civic Centre. And they sang it. It was the finale song. And I just love it. I love the guitar. I just, it, it just conjures up so many memories of so many different places because I've heard it all over the world. Um, so that, that would be... But then I, I, I do like the classics as well, Debussy and, and some arias. I have many favourite arias from the operas. So difficult to name just one, but I, I would say dating back, as this is about the 60s, 70s as well, um, that would be my number one song. Did you see the Hollies in the cavern and in... Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. See the Hollies, oh, well, we've said the swinging blue jeans, the... Farron and the Flamingos. Oh, I love Farron. Farron and the Flamingos, my goodness. What happened to them? Who doesn't love them? Oh, Billy so many. Fury, Billy Fury. Billy Fury. Billy Fury down in the, um, yes. in the Albert Dock. And El uh, Elliot, El Elvis, I was Elvis. just about to call him. Elliot got a, um, I should have totally called him Elvis. Elliot, my seven-year-old, got a bit obsessed. He was like, when did Billy Fury die? And who was mm. he? And I was like, to be honest, I don't know much about him. Mm. Oh, he was well. one of my favourites. He was really a favourite. Um, the last time we booked to see him was at the Empire. It was big, lots of people on on the uh, in the show. Uh, but he he was ill. He he had suffered very bad health all his life, basically, 
and he was ill. So we were all queuing outside and then a notice came up to say it was cancelled. I don't think he toured anymore after then. Well, I know from reading the statue yesterday on the Albert Dock that he died in 1983, I think mm. it was, or 84, possibly the early 80s, mm. aged just 43. Yes, he was very young, but he was very good. And your standout me- memories of the Beatles? Oh, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just, I mean, there were so many memories to think about and so many Good, good times, you know, no drugs or well, I don't know what else everybody else was doing, but we didn't know anything about drugs. It was all so free and, and easy and comfortable. It was just great. But I don't know so many Beatles numbers. I couldn't say my memories of them playing in the Majestic in Birkenhead when Scylla first went. But uh, they're an amazing group and the... the you know, they started off with just the four of them, their guitars. There was no technology then. It was just good, basic music that they, they wrote and they played. And the lyrics, of course, are very, very good. Oh, God, I've just thought of one. One, one of my my first Beatles memory, because Be- the Beatles are my favourite band in the world, but I came to them after we'd moved to Spain. And I, I didn't come to them through you. You know, I came to them like many teenagers come to music that their parents love. And they go, have you heard of this great band called mm. the Beatles? I didn't actually say that, but you were like, yes, I know who they Your are. brother did. <laughs> yeah, my brother did. He was a musician. I was into them before he was. That's my claim mm. to fame. I got them into earlier. He was, like, he was later. He was like, have you heard of the Beatles? But my first Beatle-related memory was, of course, the death of John Lennon. Was it really? Yes, because I was only six and it was on the 8th of december 1980 Mm. wasn't it so Mm. i was only five or six Mm. and just the year before we moved to spain and i just remember all of you being absolutely devastated Mm. and watching the news which of course was only on you know that we didn't have all day tv or at least Mm. of all all day news at that point and uh just watching that we went to the beatles experience the beatles story it's called down at the albert dock today and the replica of that the white room Mm. With the white piano mm-hmm. that he played Imagine in. Mm. And uh, just watching that video over and over again and all, you guys just being absolutely devastated. Mm. Both my and you'd dad. already suffered the death of Elvis. You were upset about the death of Elvis. No, I didn't remember it. <laughs> oh, Marcus it's, it's Marcus. It. Yeah. yeah. Marcus I was, was too little. You were too little. He remembers the death of Elvis. Yes, he cried on his way to school. Mm. Anyway, anyway, I was going to think of a happier way to <laughs> end it. <laughs> The yeah. Hollies, the air that I breathe. And we saw breathed. them just a few days ago at the yes, Brighton Centre. They're amazing. Excellent show. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Mummy. Hope it turns out right. Sure, it will. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you'd enjoyed our little family step back in time as much as I did. Please like and subscribe so then you can get a brand new episode of the Big Travel Podcast to pop into your hand every fortnight. See you soon.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.